Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express here are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I am so delighted to welcome back to this podcast, Dr. Mandy Cohen. We'll be covering a broad range of topics focusing on Medicaid, social determinants of health, the issue of disparities and inequities in healthcare delivery, and the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare delivery. Dr. Mandy Cohen, was appointed to the role of Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services in January 2017 by Governor Roy Cooper. Before coming to the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Dr. Cohen was the Chief Operating Officer and the Chief of Staff at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. She was responsible for implementing policies for Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, known as CHIP, and the Federal Health Insurance Marketplace. Dr. Mandy Cohen received her medical degree from the Yale School of Medicine and a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. She completed her training in internal medicine at the prestigious Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Cohen, uh, really welcome back to Creating New Healthcare. How are you this morning? Well, great to be back. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I think everyone has been saying, you know, they're COVID okay. You know, like things are okay, but we we know that life is so different these days. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And you and I were comparing notes with our uh, children and families just before we got on. It's it's a different time we're living in. I want to jump in, if it's okay with you, talking about the state of North Carolina Uh, We've been severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, At the time of this interview, there are over 150,000 people in North Carolina who have tested positive for the SARS-CoV-2 virus and over 2,500 deaths. And by the time this is posted, I'm sure those numbers will have increased. What are some of the major big ticket items, challenges that you as the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services in the state have had to deal with during the pandemic? Wow, a lot. Um, The last six to seven months have felt more like several years, um, right, when you're in a crisis and a sustained crisis like like this is um, really challenging. And I, you know, but I'm very proud of the work in North Carolina. And I think that shows in the numbers. Yes, we've had, had, you know, high number of cases. But, you know, if you look at what was happening in March and April, when there was a big surge in the Northeast, we avoided that. Governor took early aggressive action to have a stay at home. And that really allowed us the opportunity to build up our response capability. It allowed us to get the protective equipment we needed, get the testing in place that we needed, start our contact tracing and rev up that work, and really uh, understand uh, how how to to respond to this new virus. And so then, then you know, as the South has started to see a surge of cases in the June-July timeframe, I think North Carolina's approach to be very measured in how we were easing restrictions, moving pretty quickly to a statewide um, mask uh, requirement, I think also helped prevent us experiencing that second surge that the rest of the South saw. Now, we we did have some increase in cases, but I think we were never in a place where we were straining our healthcare resources, which we never want to, to, to do. So I think largely we have done a very, very good job. And 
you know, we have seen uh, over the end of July into August, we saw declining in, in cases, which is very good news. So that stabilization is really helpful. Um, and I think it's allowed us to um, make progress and, and have our kids go back to in-person school, even though school looks different with some maximum safety precautions. Um, our universities um, were going back. Some of them had had to uh, take step backwards because uh, we didn't get all of that right, but um, I think we're learning lessons there. But there's been so many challenges on many fronts, but there so many folks also have stepped up and have just been tremendous, whether it's our healthcare workers, our hospitals, um, the folks um, in the National Guard who help us at food banks, whether it's every North Carolinian that's wearing a face covering to help us slow the spread of this virus. So, you know, the, the days are hard, the weeks feel long, um, but the things that keep me going are the fact that we're all in this together. Um, and, you know, I know folks are working hard across the board. Yeah, you know, Dr. Cohen, first of all, I just want to say to you, your colleagues, uh, all the workers in the state that you mentioned, the National Guard, I just want to, you know, as you were talking, the first thought and and feeling that came to me was just uh, immense gratitude. So I just want to say that before we, you know, get to other questions. Can't express how important the work you and your colleagues are doing uh, here in this state and across the country. It, it is clearly, you know, uh, providers and, and physicians and PAs and nurses, uh, and they are heroic and, and uh, you know, really running a marathon, sometimes sprinting and running a marathon. But again, just uh, we are so fortunate. I know there's a lot of criticism, but, uh, and, and there are lessons and there are things we could have done a lot better in this country. But still, it's just take my hat off to all of you. And I'm sure those folks who are listening, uh, I, I suspect, uh, you know, are feeling something similar to what I'm feeling. The focus of this podcast and my work in general is really on the, on the issues of reframing healthcare. Where, where do we have to go in the future? And so I'm just wondering, you know, what lessons about healthcare, healthcare delivery have you and your colleagues learned? Has the, what has the pandemic taught us about our healthcare delivery system? Well, I think it, it reinforced a lot of the issues that we already knew were there. Um, let's start with some of the uh, racial and ethnic inequities, right? The long-standing uh, inequities in our system that, frankly, you know, we, you and I have studied that that the data has been out there for a long time, but the action to really systemically change things has not been there. Um, and I think that the combination of COVID and the racial dialogue the important dialogue about racial inequity that, that our country is reckoning with. I think we need to learn, learn lessons from both. Um, and I think that they, they come together in very many ways around, you know, our healthcare system. Um, and I, I want to make sure that healthcare meets this moment uh, and, and, and make sure that we are learning the lesson of how do we think about deploying resources, thinking about creating policies, that are really equitable because COVID has not been equitable. It has shown a light on the ongoing injustices that we have seen for a long time. Um, and uh, how do we, you know, think about that? So that's one one lesson learned of like how. how but I, I think the other is really realizing how decentralized we are, right? So when you want to have a coordinated, sustained effort in a crisis, 
decentralization is not your friend. Um, I understand why we, we, we got to that place, but our lack of data sharing, our lack of visibility into what's going on even around our own state has made it hard for us to be able to respond and deploy resources. I think we've done a great job in getting much more centralized and getting more streamlined and kind of on the same page, same team with our hospitals, with our local health departments. But I, I think, again, shows the the siloedness of our system, the decentralization of our system. And as we recover from this, I think we're going to need to be sure to put in the kinds of uh, processes and structures that allow us to be more more of a system, right? We talk about the healthcare system, but we're a lot of really fragmented little pieces. And I'd like to make sure as we recover that we think about whether that's just data sharing um, and how do we do that better? Again, a longstanding issue in healthcare, but also about communication, deployment of resources, um, infrastructure, how, you know, and, and uh, using economies of scale. Uh, those kinds of concepts that we we need to take advantage of in healthcare, and then I think the last one is probably the more the most obvious is is that when we all needed to to stay at home, but people still needed to get healthcare, we we rapidly had to transition to much more virtual care, telephone, video, other mechanisms to connect in, and I think that care beyond walls is a critical component to both how we improve access, but also sustain the system from a cost perspective going going forward um, and meeting people where they are. So those are my big three buckets of, of lessons. Equity, more coordinated thought about a central system response, systemness, I guess I'll call is my second one. So uh, systemness and then uh, care beyond walls. The issue of inequities and disparities, the issue of systemic and structural racism. And I, I know that uh, from our previous conversations and from, quite honestly, from just listening to you speak at various uh, uh, forums and, and just looking at your body of work and what you, you've been uh, leading in North Carolina, this is a topic that you've been thinking about for some time and working to combat. So I want to ask you some, perhaps some tough questions. I, I mean, this is a, a larger, as you point out, a larger social issue uh, catalyzed in part by some of what we've seen uh, really magnified. It's almost like the, the pandemic shone a light on the inequities and disparities. Uh, you know, uh, multiple, multiple publications and health affairs and other respected medical journals, uh, studies showing the increased rate of infection in uh, populations, black populations, Latinx populations across the country, uh, increased morbidity, increased mortality. So in, in, in many states, you're seeing uh, almost double the rate of, of deaths in the black population due to COVID uh, compared to white uh, people. And uh, in fact, just yesterday, there was an article published in Health Affairs uh, looking at the factors that are behind this. It's obviously in healthcare and it's a broader social issue, which is, is really, again, with the Black Lives Matter movement going on here. So you know, bringing it down to to our state level, and again, you, with your expertise and your background and your interest in this, I'd like to ask you first question, which is, uh, has North Carolina been collecting data on this? I, I see a lot of data coming out of Massachusetts, as, you know, and you're very familiar with those folks too, having done quite a, years, a few years of training back in, in Boston. But what are we doing as a state and are states getting together and, and looking at this data? Because if you, obviously, as you know, uh, if you don't study it, if you don't measure it, um, you can't 
can't understand it, you can't, as you point out, do something about it. So first question is, are we looking at that data? And, and then, you know, I'm really, really interested in, you know, what dialogue discussion is occurring at your level, at the state level, where you sit with the governor, uh, with the assembly, in, in terms of talking about this? And, you know, is there any movement towards actually understanding it, identifying those, those issues, and then eliminating them? So a bunch of questions. I'm really, really interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Yeah, so a couple things. So first on the data capture, I think it's right. Like if you're we're not if we're not stratifying all of our metrics by race, ethnicity, gender, and age, like we're not going to be able to uh, actually respond and deploy policies and resources to address things. So that's certainly the the very minimum of what we need to be doing, um, and and we are doing that here. So we are able to do that with our testing data, and it took us a while, but now are also able to do that with our hospital hospitalization data as well. Um, I think we do need deeper study into understanding the clinical implications here because I, I think that there is way more to the story about this virus and how it impacts certain people uh, uh, and their their underlying conditions. But so I think we have a lot more to learn scientifically um, about that. But in terms of, of identifying the the data, I think we're doing an okay job. We can always do better, um, but I don't want to get stuck at, at and I'm I'm stealing this phrase from Mark Smith, who um, is just a wonderful human being. Used to run uh, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation. I'm sorry, the California Foundation, and you know he says I don't want to admire this problem. I want to do something about this problem, <laughs> right? And like so, data is important, but. But I want to make sure to focus on, particularly because I sit in a place where my job is to respond, take action, is that I want to make sure that we are deploying policies and actions that respond to that data. And we have already. So in our response effort um, here in North Carolina, there is an, you know, saying there's an equity lens, it feels too small of what we are doing. Like we are full tilt on saying we need to deploy the maximum amount of resources to our historically marginalized communities. So when the state went to surge free testing, we didn't surge testing blanketly. We were very targeted in, in surging uh, free testing into the zip codes that were dominated by our African-American communities and our Latinx Hispanic communities. Um, we went straight using our data go straight straight there then when we even wanted to when we wanted to hire contact tracers right very much a, we we hired half of them were bilingual um that we that we hired uh when we wanted to contract with the companies to even do the testing or tracing we said we want to work with diverse organizations we want to work with minority owned businesses because as we do the health interventions i want to create jobs and i want to create wealth for these communities because we know that your your paycheck influences your overall health and so we need to be thinking about job creation as as healthcare leaders, um, that's an important part of this and economic recovery, which is why COVID has been so such a hard thing for I think a, a, as a as a healthcare leader. I can look at the the data about the risks related to the virus, which are extreme, and we we need to be doing the kinds of of interventions and prevention of everyone wearing a mask, everyone staying socially distant. But those economic impacts of this virus 
also have health impacts. Um, and we need to be bringing that into the conversation um, as well. And so none of these are easy decisions and they all have uh, hard trade-offs uh, to them. And so we are trying to, like I said, use our data, don't admire the problem, do something about uh, about the problem. So, because I worry we get into analysis paralysis of wanting the perfect data before we figure out solutions, but we need to act because we're in a crisis. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think you obviously you're an expert in the social determinants of health, the understanding of, of the fact that the vast majority of health is not just the medications and traditional clinical uh, interventions, but a lot of it has to do with, as you point out, education, employment, uh, meaningful employment, uh, salary, safe neighborhoods and communities, transportation, uh, housing, you know, safe housing and all those sorts of things that really, really, really contribute to the vast majority of health outcomes. So we really don't know why we're seeing a predominance, uh, an increased uh, risk of infection and morbidity and mortality from COVID-19 in the Latinx and Black population. But there are some conjectures around is crowding and, and lack of transportation, the fact that many people in these populations are essential workers, so they don't have the luxury of sheltering in place, uh, of social distancing. They have to go to work, and they don't have transportation, so they're taking public transportation, and so they're being more exposed, and so that's part of it. But uh, So I'm just wondering, diving into, and I love, by the way, I love the, I'm going to use your phrase and Mark Smith's phrase, not admiring the problem. It's, it's almost like, don't get mesmerized by the problem. And so I guess to your point, what else can we do or what else are we doing in the state around uh, identifying some of these structural and systemic issues and disparities and equities? Well, this is where I'm so proud of the team here in North Carolina, right? We've been focused on what we call healthy opportunities or others say the social determinants for, for quite some time have been building infrastructure to break down silos uh, because it does take very intentional effort to do it. So as we did our response to COVID, we took those same, uh, you know, that, that same muscle we had built and, and applied it to COVID. So for example, we um, just released a support services program to help people isolate and quarantine if they're either sick or exposed. Because we know to your point, it is hard for folks to stay home when they are saying, look, I, I got to go to work. I have to pay rent. I got to put food on the table. If I don't show up for work, like those things don't happen. And we have to recognize that that disproportionately impacts our Latinx and Hispanic community, our African-American community. So we launched a support services program that layers on top of already existing infrastructure. So we, as you, you know, in North Carolina, we have NC Care 360, which is the first statewide and now deployed into all 100 counties, first statewide platform that integrates healthcare systems, doctors' offices, hospitals, and human service organizations, the community organizations that help with those things you were saying, food and transportation and housing. So we have NC Care 360, but we knew we have to build on it. So we, we also deployed a big community health worker program because we know folks need help navigating those services as well as healthcare in this hard time. But then we actually have to pay for these services to help folks be able to isolate and quarantine if they are sick. And so we launched that program to do wage replacement, to get a COVID relief payment, to be able to stay home, to get access to food delivery at your home so you can stay home, to get access to transportation to need it to a doctor's appointment or what have you. Um, so we are trying to layer on different programs to each other because they, they are, they're important to have synergy there, right? You have the the 
NCCare 360, that is sort of that infrastructure referral platform that helps you know, how do I navigate folks to that? Then you have the actual community health worker that works with those families, meets them where they are, builds the trust, does the communication and explanation, and then you have the dollars that flow to really help folks um, in the moment that they are in. And so we are trying to build on the things that we've been learning over the last three years, four, three and a half years now that I've been secretary, um, and apply that here to COVID. And, and again, apply it with an equity lens because we, we, again, know that our African-American and Hispanic communities have been harder hit by this. And so we have targeted those communities um, in particular. We're only able to do what I just talked about in 20 counties because it is an intensive effort, um, but we have targeted communities that are hardest hit by COVID and have our highest concentration of these of our historically marginalized communities. And so I think th that is what, you know, the, our attempt to um, meet the moment um, of two, two dual crises um, and use our resources to try to use our response efforts to head us in the right direction. Um, but there's so much more to do. Like I said, I can't get to everywhere uh, just given the nature of this, this crisis. So um, we have a lot more work to do. The NC Care 360, just for folks who are not familiar with it, this is a tool that allows uh, clinicians, uh, social workers, community health workers, to ask, uh, you can ask uh, patients or people uh, what types of social determinants of health issues like transportation, employment, housing, food uh, that they are struggling with, and then it connects you to community uh, vendors or stakeholders that can deliver on that. Is that is that a fair uh, explanation? Or, and, and please expound on it. No, absolutely, and it's a closed loop referral. So when when you, as a doctor or your your you know your nurse case manager, refer someone to a to a a resource a service, you will actually know did they get it, which is the important part, right? I want to know if my patient made it to their cardiologist. I referred them to. I also want to know did they actually make it to the housing provider or the food bank or what have you. Um, so it allows you to get that data back and actually track to know. Who you know? Where are they getting those resources, and in a timely manner? So, I think it's it's huge as an infrastructure, but it alone does not solve the problem, right? It has to be layered on with trusted voices within the community. So that's where the community health workers come in, and then it has to be layered on with actual resources because folks are hurting uh, right now, and we have to pay for wage replacement or COVID relief payments um, and to pay for food delivery. Or, um, and so that's how we are trying to prioritize our dollars to help um, communities be able to make it through during these hard times. Yeah, it's, it's so many questions, one of which I want to get back to what you just said, but community health workers, mm -hmm. you and I have talked about this before. How important are community health workers? So the reason I think they are important is, is because we in healthcare, and we need to acknowledge this, we have a trust deficit. Um, I think particularly with our communities uh, th that have been historically marginalized. So I think there is, our African-American and Hispanic Latinx communities have felt let down, left out by our healthcare system, and there's a distrust there. And so having community health workers, for me, is important for navigation, yes, but really that is about rebuilding trust. Um, and helping uh, meet people where they are, where after 
past negative experiences, we can start to rebuild a bridge there because a lot of, of the inequities come from the fact that they don't seek care because they don't think they're going to be heard, listened to, cared for. And I, I have anecdotal stories I could tell you now about in COVID where, um, you know, a very powerful story that I, I heard from a, a young man who brought his, his dad to the emergency room, who happened to be a paramedic and is, is now a medical student, um, who had medical knowledge, knew his dad was getting sick from COVID and, and declining, dropped his dad. The emergency room had to drop him because of the, you know, the visitation rules, understandably, but because his dad didn't speak the best English, uh, the son got a call less than an hour later saying, come pick your dad up. And he was like, no, my dad's sick. He needs to stay. But his dad couldn't sort of articulate what, what he was feeling. And so luckily that young man advocated for his dad who ultimately did stay. And within, unfortunately, within 24 hours was in the intensive care unit. That's how sick he was. And so, you know, that was ultimately, I'll just say he is fine now. Dad's out of the hospital. So all good news story there. So that was a good outcome, but it just shows that, that we are not being as, um, you know, we in healthcare have a lot of work to do and we need community health workers to, to act like that young man did as an advocate for folks who sometimes feel like they don't have a voice um, to help them navigate a very confusing system for even those of us who are in it all the time. It's confusing for even us. I think that they are uh, a really important piece of our, our effort here. I couldn't agree with you more. And I would say it's a contextualizing of care, really, you know, bringing care that people want, addressing the issues that are really preventing them from being healthy. And I, you know, you said before that people feel like they haven't been treated well by the system. I think you and I, again, looking at the literature, it's not just a feeling, it's actually a fact. It's a reality, right? And that's the inequities and disparities. And so uh, people are in some sense right to feel that way. And um, and I think what you're doing is spot on. It's addressing the issue. It's, it's crossing that barrier, which has existed, that the system has created. Um, so I take my hat off to you for, you know, again, you're a leader in this realm. How many states have uh, this sort of program, this NC Care 360, the reaching out, identifying the closed loop, making sure that, yes, as a doctor or nurse or someone who says, okay, yes, you need a, a food, here's a vendor, connecting them, and then gets the feedback that, yes, the, the person actually connected. How many states have uh, something like that? So North Carolina is the first statewide um, system, uh, but I know there are a lot of healthcare systems that are deploying this. So I know Kaiser Permanente is, is looking at and, and is in the process of slowly uh, deploying a closed loop referral platform uh, similar to NC Care 360. I know the state of Connecticut uh, through their hospital association is working on it, though I don't think any are in full deployment yet. I think Intermountain, I think Geisinger. So some of the, the health systems that are well known to folks who, you know, our, our innovators and leaders, particularly in the value space, recognize the importance of connecting to community organizations. Um, and so I think you're, that's why you're seeing health systems be the ones to, to do this. But I, I am not aware of other states. I think Louisiana is looking at something like this. I think Pennsylvania is looking at it. So I don't want to say other states aren't, aren't walking down that, that path. Um, but North Carolina... Um, we, we happen to be early adopters of, of that kind of a platform. Yeah, and, and along the same lines, I, I think of the COVID-19 being sort of a catalyst or exacerbate of some of the problems that 
already existed in healthcare. You know, you you have been and the governor have been a major proponent of Medicaid expansion in North Carolina. We are one of only is it twelve or sixteen states that don't have Medicaid expansion uh, in the country. And um, you know, it was important before, and and I, I you know love you to to uh, elaborate on that. But it seems to me now that the pandemic has actually increased the critical importance of expanding Medicaid. Um, at least one reason, and I've, I've heard uh, Governor Cooper talk about this recently, is that as COVID hit and unemployment went up, people were losing their insurance. And so now you have more people who are going to be needing Medicaid. And so it adds to what was already a tremendous need for Medicaid expansion. I'd just love for you to comment on that. Sure. I mean, Medicaid expansion is, and our, our lack of it here in North Carolina is honestly a black eye. Um, the fact that Oklahoma, Missouri are expanding Medicaid and we can't find our way there as a uh, as a state is, is really disappointing, particularly when in this time of, of crisis, we want to be maximizing federal support for our state. And here's a way where we can spend no state dollars and get more $5 billion a year in federal support. I, I, just, I just don't don't understand. I think we know all the benefits of someone having access to insurance coverage. It doesn't, like I said, no one thing solves all problems, but it, it's a tool. It's a tool we need to have to respond. And let me make the economic argument here. Now we, we, North Carolina, are competing with other states economically that have that, those dollars flowing to their economies, right? When, when I say $5 billion, that, those are dollars that are going to create jobs to help our economy overall. And now we as a state are competing with those states that have made that choice and made that investment. And so it puts us behind. So I think we know all of the health reasons why we should be doing it. I want to tell you the economic reasons uh, to, to, to do it as well. And, you know, it is, it is beyond time. And I, you know, I, I work for a governor who has been advocating this for this for a long time, but I was, I, he got a little upset this week in a press conference that we haven't done it, and rightly so. And he's not a he's not a governor who get, gets upset. He is extremely measured and mild mannered. And so to see him upset, he's expressing his frustration that we haven't we haven't found our way to yes that we we should be able to come together as a state on this one. It is not a partisan issue, and we need to to work together to help North Carolina on this one. Yeah, he was he was mentioning numbers like qu- quite a few hundred thousand people who will be out of work and who will need to uh, will, won't will be running out of health insurance and will need it. On the top of the, how many people are uh, utilizing Medicaid in the state of North Carolina? We have two point two million people on Medicaid. That's out of a, a state of about ten and a half million. The vast majority of those are children. So about one and a half million are children uh, on on the program. And what we believe is if we expanded Medicaid, like 38, 39 other states have done, uh, that it would be able to cover as many as 600,000 additional people in North Carolina, and they would be adults. So that is what we're we're talking about. And, And what we are needing to do in North Carolina, because we don't have Medicaid expansion, is to use some of the federal CARES dollars to pay for things that Medicaid would have covered, whether that's testing, behavioral health treatment, primary care access or other, you know, we had to divert some of that funding that could be being used for other things. We need to move forward on that. 
These are significant numbers. So it sounds like well over 2 million people on Medicaid. So that's over 20% or, of the population of the entire state is on Medicaid. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, one in five. That's right. One of one of five. And then what percentage of, of kids, of children are on Medicaid? Oh, kids, it's higher. Um, I, it, it's one in three, I think, children are on Medicaid. But let, I, let me confirm that for you. Yeah. But, you know, that's, uh, you know, even if you're off by a little bit, this is startling. One in five people in North Carolina are on Medicaid and one in three children approximately are on Medicaid. I mean, these are not, this is not a, a marginal fringe, small percentage of the population. And then the fact that the Medicaid expansion can help another 500,000, again, we're talking about 5% of the population. These are significant numbers. These are, you, you walk around the streets and you look left or right and someone's going to be on Medicaid. I mean, it's just, uh, it's such an important, and I, I, I'm asking for the numbers and because this is such an important initiative you're working on. I heard Governor Cooper speak about this and I heard the passion. I heard the pain in his voice, the concern for people. We know, again, uh, there's so much studies that uh, the studies have already been done showing that if people don't have health insurance, they are going to suffer and their care is going to be less, their health is going to be worse, their outcome is going to be worse. It's going to cost them. It's going to cost their families, both physically, emotionally, relationally, uh, financially, and we, we all pay for it in the end. And so, again, such an important issue to understand that we're talking about our neighbors, we're talking about our communities, talking about our fellow citizens. So the work is so important. Has this helped with the work that you've been doing in terms of trying to bring out these programs you mentioned like community health workers or has this made it more difficult what what sort of barriers are you still trying to overcome well look i i will say that responding to this crisis has taken a huge effort on my team's part and there's only so many hours in the day and we certainly need to prioritize covid we've tried to stick to the to our our values and our underlying mission as we do it so that when we can build upon for healthy opportunities and and have that alignment we want to. I think our Medicaid team has done a fantastic job of, of modifying policies in order to respond to this crisis, but it's hard, right? There's only so many hours in the day and my team is like running a sprint but it's a marathon at the same time, a sprinting marathon uh, to be able to, uh, you know, do all this work. So yes, things have had to get deprioritized. We were doing a huge focus, for example, on early childhood health safety uh, and learning. Now, that not that that's not important anymore, but we certainly know that we haven't been uh, making that as front and center as I would like it to be. So as we are hopefully able in the next number of months to get to a more sustainable place with, with COVID, that I certainly want to come back to some of those critical issues around early childhood. Because again, those are the kinds of things where if you invest early in a child's health and well-being and their safety, uh, they build lifelong patterns of health in early childhood, lifelong patterns of learning in those first five years. So you're going to see us want to come back to that. But I've certainly, unfortunately, had to shelve some of the things we had been working on. But um, at the same time, COVID's given us the opportunity to accelerate some things like that we talked about related to NC Care 360 or community health workers or others. 
it's accelerated certainly our data maturity uh, in the state. I think we've have a much closer working relationship with our hospitals um, and them with each other because we have to in a crisis. And so that's been a real positive. Uh, so, so look, there's there are always really good things that come out of it, but I, I want to make sure we don't revert back uh, in some ways, right? I think there's a lot of things that we need to make sure that we are going to keep uh, that that we modified during this crisis, things related to telehealth, for example, we modified a lot of policies really quickly. I want to see us sustain that as we go forward, because I think telehealth should just become a natural part of, of care access um, in our state. So we hope to ho hold on to some of those those things, but we're, we're still a little too in the middle of the crisis to get some distance from it. Let me ask you a quick question about that. Why is, you know, we had this tremendous increase in telehealth, you know, literally over 90% of visits were being seen by telehealth and now it's going to come back down. And why is telehealth important from your perspective? Why, why is it something we should hold on to and continue in the future? It is meeting people where they are, right? I, I don't want to do telehealth just because it seems like the new shiny ball. I, I actually think it's it's more meeting folks where they are. If they have transportation issues, then let's help get, get them uh, access to care um, through telehealth. I think it expands the, the number of hours and number of places in which people can actually access care. And for me, it's an access uh, issue. We have to make sure that quality is maintained. So we can't do everything virtual. So don't hear me say that. But I think it just has to become, well, well what are the appropriate things to retain and, and maintain as virtual? Do you really need to go in for that, you know, you know, every month blood pressure check, or can you do a, a video chat with a blood pressure cuff, and then you 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 look at the video the 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 blood pressure cuff and uh, make sure you know what what that says. So I, I think there are ways for us to integrate things outside of the walls of our brick and mortar hospitals clinics uh, to be able to incorporate and meet people where they are. I think you're right about access. I think cost is the other issue. It's just so much lower cost to do telehealth uh, without all the overhead and the offices and this and that. But access, I think, is huge. It's January 20th, 2021. You have been called into the Oval Office by the President of the United States, and you're sitting in front of the President and the VP, whoever they may be. And the question is, Dr. Cohen, you know, you only have a minute with the President and VP. What are the one, two, three things you would recommend that the president focus on, focuses on in terms of healthcare policy and strategy to really uh, transform healthcare delivery? Zooming out big picture, I think my first piece would say, would say you need to focus on health and not just healthcare. So, and how do you bring to bear all of the levers of the federal government in coordination with your partners in the private sector? to really prioritize health. And then I think that changes a lens, and we, I know, Dev, you and I have talked about this a lot, I think that lens is important. So that's what I would say, is like prioritize health and start, and talk about health um, in a way that's meaningful to folks and feels complete. And it's not just, did you get your uh, uh, blood pressure checked, which is important, but it's, do you also, are you breathing clean air? Do you have safe and stable housing or do you have access to nutritious food, right? All the things are important. So I'd say that's one from a framing perspective and I think help to engage the public. I also think that the, the other part 
um, that is important is is to to really think about systemness um, and and to think about how do we get the different parts of our system to work in better coordination for with each other get rid of some of the waste that is in it but also maximize the things that are are working and how do we work to de-silo um, our both health and human service systems so they work in better coordination with each other. Uh, and then there's a lot of tactical things that I would recommend in terms of increasing access to care and insurance coverage and those, those kinds of things. But that's my one minute. That's fantastic. So friends and colleagues, uh, I'm going to bring this podcast episode to a close. Uh, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Mandy Cohen. Uh, can't say enough about her uh, her mission, her work, her accomplishments, and what she what she's doing to change healthcare in North Carolina, and I think impacted across the country, as you heard today. And as I do uh, each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you're doing, and we recognize how critically important, especially now your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. As always, I hope you've benefited from this podcast as much as I have. My goal is to provide you with information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. This is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.